Experience the best in relaxation and entertainment with Saul Good Streaming at SaulGood.org. Our extensive library features hundreds of audiobooks, thousands of short stories, original podcasts, and popular sounds for sleep, meditation, and relaxation all ad-free. Whether you want to escape into a good book or fall asleep to your favorite ambient sound, we have something for everyone. Go to SaulGood.org to start streaming and discover your new go-to for entertainment and relaxation. That's S-O-L-G-O-O-D dot O-R-G. Enrich your mind with sounds of knowledge from SaulGoodBooks.com. Unlock access to a vast library of ad-free audiobooks for only $10 a month. Listen, learn, and grow at SaulGoodBooks.com. Chapter 13 Death Veiled with Lichen Mr. Button, said she, when the latter had descended, there's a little barrel. She pointed to something green and lichen-covered that lay between the trunks of two trees, something that eyes less sharp than the eyes of a child might have mistaken for a boulder. Sure in faith, it's an old empty barrel, said Button, wiping the sweat from his brow and staring at the thing. Some ship must have been weathering here and forgot it. It'll do for a seat, whilst we have dinner." He sat down upon it and distributed the bananas to the children, who sat down on the grass. The barrel looked such a deserted and neglected thing that his imagination assumed it to be empty. Empty or full, however, it made an excellent seat, for it was quarter-sunk in the green soft earth and immovable. "'If ships has been here, ships will come again,' said he, as he munched his bananas. "'Will Daddy's ship come here?' asked Dick. "'Hey, to be sure it will,' replied the other, taking out his pipe. "'Now run about and play with the flowers, and leave me alone to smoke a pipe, and then we'll all go to the top of the hill beyond, and have a look round us.' "'Come long, Em,' cried Dick, and the children started off amongst the trees, Dick pulling at the hanging vine tendrils, and Emmeline plucking what blossoms she could find within her small reach. When he had found his pipe he hallooed, and small voices answered him from the wood. Then the children came running back, Emmeline laughing and showing her small white teeth, a large bunch of blossoms in her hand. Dick flowerless, but carrying what seemed a large green stone. "'Look what a funny thing I've found!' he cried. "'It's got holes in it!' "'Drop it!' shouted Mr. Button, springing from the barrel as if someone had struck an awl into him. "'Where'd you find it? What do you mean by touching it? Give it here!' He took it gingerly in his hands. It was a lichen-covered skull with a great dent in the back of it, where it had been cloven by an axe or some sharp instrument, he hove it as far as he could away amidst the trees. "'What is it, Paddy?' asked Dick, half astonished, half frightened at the old man's manner. "'It's nothing good,' replied Mr. Button. "'There were two others, and I wanted to fetch them,' grumbled Dick. "'You must leave them alone.' "'Musha, musha, but there's been black doings here in days gone by. What is it, Emmeline?' Emmeline was holding out her bunch of flowers for admiration, 
He took a great gaudy blossom, if flowers can ever be called gaudy, and struck its stalk in the pocket of his coat. Then he led the way uphill, muttering as he went. The higher they got, the less dense became the trees, and the fewer the coconut palms. The coconut palm loves the sea, and the few they had here all had their heads bent in the direction of the lagoon, as if yearning after it. They passed a cane-break, where canes twenty feet high whispered together like bulrushes. Then a sunlit sward, destitute of tree or shrub, led them sharply upward for a hundred feet or so to where a great rock, the highest point on the island, stood casting its shadow in the sunshine. The rock was about twenty feet high and easy to climb. Its top was almost flat and as spacious as an ordinary dinner-table. From it one could obtain a complete view of the island and the sea. Looking down, one's eyes travelled over the trembling and waving tree-tops to the lagoon, beyond the lagoon to the reef, beyond the reef to the infinite space of the Pacific. The reef encircled the whole island, here further from the land, here closer. The song of the surf on it came as a whisper, just like the whisper you hear in a shell. But a strange thing, though the sound heard on the beach was continuous, up here one could distinguish an intermittency, as breaker after breaker dashed itself to death on the coral strand below. You have seen a field of green barley ruffled over by the wind. Just so from the hilltop you could see the wind in its passage over the sunlit foliage below. It was breezing up from the southwest, and banyan and cocoa-palm, artu and breadfruit swayed and rocked in the merry wind. So bright and moving was the picture of the breeze-swept sea, the blue lagoon, the foam-dashed reef, and the rocking trees, that one felt one had surprised some mysterious gala day, some festival of nature, more than ordinarily glad. As if to strengthen the idea, now and then above the trees would burst what seemed a rocket of coloured stars. The stars would drift away in a flock on the wind and be lost. They were flights of birds. All coloured birds peopled the trees below blue, scarlet, dove-coloured, bright of eye, but voiceless. From the reef you could occasionally see the seagulls rising here and there in clouds, like small puffs of smoke. The lagoon, here deep, here shallow, presented, according to its depth or shallowness, the colours of ultramarine or sky. The broadest parts were the palest, because the most shallow and here and there in the shallows you might see a faint tracery of coral ribs almost reaching the surface. The island at its broadest might have been three miles across. There was not a sign of house or habitation to be seen, and not a sail on the whole of the wide Pacific. It was a strange place to be up here to find oneself surrounded by grass and flowers and trees, and all the kindliness of nature, to feel the breeze blow, to smoke one's pipe, 
and to remember that one was in a place uninhabited and unknown, a place to which no messages were ever carried except by the wind or by the seagulls. In this solitude the beetle was as carefully painted and the flower carefully tended as though all the peoples of the civilized world were standing by to criticize or approve. Nowhere in the world, perhaps so well as here, could you appreciate nature's splendid indifference to the great affairs of man. The old sailor was thinking nothing of this sort. His eyes were fixed on a small and almost imperceptible stain on the horizon to the south-south-west. It was, no doubt, another island, almost hull down on the horizon. Save for this blemish, the whole wheel of the sea was empty and serene. Emmeline had not followed them up to the rock. She had gone botanizing where some bushes displayed great bunches of the crimson arita berries, as if to show to the sun what earth could do in the way of manufacturing poison. She plucked two great bunches of them, and with this treasure came back to the base of the rock. "'Leave them berries down!' cried Mr. Button, when she had attracted his attention. "'Don't put them into your mouth. Them's the never-wake-up berries!' He came down off the rock, hand over fist, flung the poisonous things away, and looked into Emmeline's small mouth, which, at his command, she opened wide. There was only a little pink tongue in it, however, curled up like a rose-leaf, no sign of berries or poison. So giving her a little shake, just as a nursemaid would have done in like circumstances, he took Dick off the rock and led the way back to the beach. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 Echoes of Fairyland Mr. Button, said Emmeline that night as they sat on the sand near the tent he had improvised, Mr. Button, cats go to sleep. They had been questioning him about the never-wake-up berries. Who said they didn't? asked Mr. Button. "'I mean,' said Emmeline, "'they go to sleep and never wake up again. Ours did. It had stripes on it, and a white chest, and rings all down its tail. It went asleep in the garden, all stretched out, and showing its teeth. And I told Jane, and Dicky ran in and told Uncle. I went to Mrs. Sims the doctor's wife, to tea, and when I came back I asked Jane where Pussy was, and she said it was dead and buried, and I wasn't to tell Uncle. "'I remember,' said Dick. "'It was the day I went to the circus, and you told me not to tell Daddy the cat was dead and buried. But I told Mrs. James's man when he came to do the garden, and I asked him where cats went when they were dead and buried and he said he guessed they went to hell, at least he hoped they did, for they were always scratching up the flowers. Then he told me not to tell anyone he said that, for it was a swear word, and he oughtn't to have said it. I asked him what he'd give me if I didn't tell, and he gave me five cents. That was the day I bought the coconut." The tent, 
a makeshift affair, consisting of two skulls and a tree-branch which Mr. Button had sawed off from a dwarf aoa, and the staysail he had brought from the brig, was pitched in the centre of the beach, so as to be out of the way of falling coconuts should the breeze strengthen during the night. The sun had set, but the moon had not yet risen, and they sat in the starlight on the sand near the temporary abode. "'What's the things you said made the boots for the people, Paddy?' asked Dick, after a pause. "'Which things?' "'You said in the wood I wasn't to talk, else—' "'Oh, the Claricans, the little men that cobbles the good people's brogues. Is that what you mean?' "'Yes,' said Dick, not knowing quite whether it was them or not that he meant, but anxious for information that he felt would be curious. "'And what are the good people?' "'Sure, where were you born and bred that you don't know the good people is the other name for the fairies, saving their presence?' "'There aren't any,' replied Dick. "'Mrs. Sims said there weren't.' "'Mrs. James,' put in Emmeline, "'said there were. She said she liked to see children believe in fairies. She was talking to another lady who'd got a red feather in her bonnet and a fur muff. They were having tea and I was sitting on the hearthrug. She said the world was getting too something or other, and then the other lady said it was, and asked Mrs. James did she see Mrs. Someone in the awful hat she wore Thanksgiving Day. They didn't say anything more about fairies. But Mrs. James—' "'Whether you believe in em or not,' said Paddy, "'there they are. And maybe they're popping out of the woods behind us now, and listening to us talking though I'm doubtful if there's any in these parts, though down in Connaught they were as thick as blackberries in the old days. Ah, musha, musha, the old days, the old days! When will I be seeing them again? Now you may believe me or believe me not, but me own old father, God rest his soul, was coming over Crockpatrick one night before Christmas, with a bottle of whisky in one hand of him, and a goose, plucked and cleaned and all in the other which same he'd won in a lottery, when, hearing a tune, no louder than the buzzin' of a bee, over a furze-bush he peeps, and there, round a big white stone, the good people were dancing in a ring, hand in hand, and kicking their heels, and the eyes of them glowing like the eyes of moths, and a chap on the stone, no bigger than the joint of your thumb, playing to them on a bagpipes. With that he let out a yell, and drops the goose, and makes for home, over the hedge and ditch, bounding like a buck kangaroo, and a face on him as white as flour when he burst in through the door, where we was all sitting round a fire, burning chestnuts, to see who'd be married the first. "'And what in the name of the saints is the matter with you?' says me mother. "'I've seen the good people,' says he, up on the field beyond,' says he and they've got the goose, says he, but begara, I've saved the bottle, he says. Draw the cock, and give me a taste of it, for me hat's in me throat, and me tongue's like a brick kiln. And when we come to prize the cock out of the bottle, there was nothing in it. And when we went next morning to look for the goose, it was gone. But there was the stone, sure enough, and the marks on it of the little brogues of the chap that played the bagpipes. 
and who'd be doubting there were fairies after that?" The children said nothing for a while, and then Dick said, "'Tell us about chloricorns, and how they make their boots.' "'When I'm telling you about chloricorns,' said Mr. Button, "'it's the truth I'm telling you, and out of me own knowledge, for I spoke to a man as held one in his hand. He was me own mother's brother, Khan Cogan, rest his soul. Khan was six foot two, with a long white face. He had his head bashed in years before I was born, in some ruction or other, and the doctors had japanned him with a five-shilling piece, beat flat." Dick interposed with a question as to the process, aim, and object of japanning, but Mr. Button passed the question by. He'd been bad enough for seeing fairies before they japanned him, but after it, begorra, he was twice as bad. I was a slip of a lad at the time, but me hair nearly turned grey with the tales he'd tell of the good people and their doings. One night they turn him into a horse and ride him half over the country, one chap on his back and another running behind, shoving furs prickles under his tail to make him buck-lip. Another night it's a donkey he'd be, harnessed to a little cart, and being kicked in the belly and made to draw stones. Then it's a goose he'd be, running over the common, with his neck stretched out, squawking, and an old fairy woman after him with a knife, till it fair drove him to the drink. Though, by the same token, he didn't want much driving. And what does he do when his money was gone? But tear the five-shilling piece they japanned him with off the top of his head, and swaps it for a bottle of whisky. And that was the end of him. Mr. Button paused to relight his pipe, which had gone out, and there was silence for a moment. The moon had risen, and the song of the surf on the reef filled the whole night with its lullaby. The broad lagoon lay waving and rippling in the moonlight in the incoming tide. Twice as broad it always looked, seen by moonlight or starlight, than when seen by day. Occasionally the splash of a great fish would cross the silence, and the ripple of it would pass a moment later across the placid water. Big things happened in the lagoon at night, unseen by eyes from the shore. You would have found the wood behind them, had you walked through it, full of light. A tropic forest under a tropic moon is green as a sea-cave. You can see the vine-tendrils and the flowers, the orchids and tree-bowls all lit as by the light of an emerald-tinted day. Mr. Button took a long piece of string from his pocket. "'It's bedtime,' said he, "'and I'm going to tether Emmeline, for fear she'll be walking in her sleep, and wandering away, and being lost in the woods.' "'I don't want to be tethered,' said Emmeline. "'Tis for your own good I'm doing it,' replied Mr. Button, fixing the string round her waist. "'Now, come along.' He led her like a dog on a leash to the tent and tied the other end of the string to the skull, which was the tent's main prop and support. "'Now,' said he, "'if you be getting up and walking about in the night, it's down the tent will be on top of us all.' And, sure enough, in the small hours of the morning, it was. 
End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 Fair Pictures in the Blue I don't want my old breeches on! I don't want my old breeches on! Dick was darting about naked on the sand, Mr. Button after him with a pair of small trousers in his hand. A crab might just as well have attempted to chase an antelope. They had been on the island a fortnight, and Dick had discovered the keenest joy in life—to be naked. To be naked and wallow in the shallows of the lagoon, to be naked and sit drying in the sun, to be free from the curse of clothes, to shed civilization on the beach in the form of breeches, boots, coat and hat, and to be one with the wind and the sun and the sea. The very first command Mr. Button had given him on the second morning of their arrival was, "'Strip, and into the water, would you?' Dick had resisted at first, and Emmeline, who rarely wept, had stood weeping in her little chemise. But Mr. Button was obdurate. The difficulty at first was to get them in. The difficulty now was to keep them out. Emmeline was sitting as nude as the day-star, drying in the morning sun after her dip, and watching Dick's evolutions on the sand. The lagoon had for the children far more attraction than the land. Woods where you might knock ripe bananas off the tree with a big cane, sands where golden lizards would scuttle about so tame that you might, with a little caution, seize them by the tail, a hilltop from whence you might see, to use Paddy's expression, to the back of beyond—all these were fine enough in their way, but they were nothing to the lagoon. Deep down where the coral branches were you might watch, whilst Paddy fished, all sorts of things disporting on the sand-patches and in between the coral tufts—hermit crabs that had evicted whelks, wearing the evicted one's shells—an obvious misfit sea-anemones as big as roses, flowers that closed up in an irritable manner if you lowered the hook gently down and touched them, extraordinary shells that walked about on feelers, elbowing the crabs out of the way and terrorizing the whelks, the overlords of the sand-patches these, yet touch one on the back with a stone tied to a bit of string, and down he would go, flat, motionless and feigning death. There was a lot of human nature lurking in the depths of the lagoon—comedy and tragedy. An English rock-pool has its marvels. You can fancy the marvels of this vast rock-pool—nine miles round, and varying from a third to a half a mile broad, swarming with tropic life and flights of painted fishes where the glittering albacore passed beneath the boat like a fire and a shadow, where the boat's reflection lay as clear on the bottom as though the water were air, where the sea, pacified by the reef, told like a little child its dreams. It suited the lazy humour of Mr. Button that he never pursued the lagoon more than half a mile or so on either side of the beach. He would bring the fish he caught ashore and, with the aid of his tinder-box and dead sticks, make a blazing fire on the sand, cook fish and bread-fruit and taro-roots, helped and hindered by the children. 
They fixed the tent amidst the trees, at the edge of the chaparral, and made it larger and more abiding with the aid of the dinghy's sail. Amidst these occupations, wonders, and pleasures, the children lost all count of the flight of time. They rarely asked about Mr. Lestrange. After a while they didn't ask about him at all. Children soon forget. End of chapter 15 End of part 2